Sal Val is a comedian, actor, writer, and musician who has appeared on programs for CBC, MTV, and YTV. She's also headlined stand-up comedy shows all over North America. A graduate of Second City's conservatory program, Val's also performed with the improv troupe Starwipe for eight years. Val is set to co-headline Just for Laughs Toronto with Ali Pierce in the fall. Uh, has just finished filming a reality show for Out TV and has been performing non-stop during Pride. Val combined coming out as transgender during the pandemic with her sudden emergence as a force in Canadian comedy. She spoke with me about how, as a comedic performer, one of the first things she's driven to address is the legibility of her gender non-conforming identity. She does this with a terrific sense of timing and also through her great command of physicality, a thing that not all stand-up comedians have. We also talked about the sense of responsibility she has to bring joy through humor. This is of course common among comics, but perhaps not as common as we might think. Her goal is not only to break the tension, but also to remind audiences that they don't need to decide what is quote, morally okay to laugh at, and that there's no need for pity or coddling affective states that are antithetical to a good comedy show and certainly not conducive to recognizing transgender as a legitimate social identity. It was really interesting to get a sense from Al of how the industry of comedy works in Canada. It's a competitive market and one where comedians don't really receive much or any support. For this reason, she says she's had to build a career mostly on her own. Working independently means that, as she puts it, your attention is being pulled in so many different directions at once. There can and should be more support for the art of stand-up comedy in Canada. And so we address the kinds of organizing and lobbying that's happening around this issue, which has only been exacerbated by the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. The conversation really zeroes in on the question of how comedy works and the place of vulnerability and authenticity in it. This is especially relevant to Al Val's brand of comedy. Comedy is, from her perspective, easier when it's honest. And this is in spite of the fact that there's a degree to which when you perform, you're always, quote, submitting yourself to judgment as an entertainer. That relationship between humor and truth is maybe an especially salient feature of today's comedy when you think about the ways that it's emerged as a confessional, intimate, immediate art form in the last five years. The way Al puts it, it's about packaging both trauma and insight into joke form to both disguise it and inspire people to think and reflect on a thesis for a while. A central part of her comedy right now is working through the question of what constitutes gender. In the words of Tay Meadow, quote, gender subjectivity is tender ground. It shifts beneath our feet, eludes easy capture, and impinges on emotional nerves. Sometimes we find ourselves seeking recognition in the most unlikely places. Even when handled with care, it is treacherous territory. We're seeing this throughout society right now, as greater support for transgender folks is also provoking a regressive conservative backlash against gender nonconformity. I found it really striking that for Val, the focus is on making sure that with positive trans representation, we make transphobic jokes and rearguard politics a relic of the past. She says that she just has a nonchalant, indifferent, blind trust that we will look back in 10 years and know that the backlash was the last gasp of a hostile, uncaring attitude that has no place in society. It's wonderful to be able to chat with you. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm I kind of, you know, like a lot of people am in awe of people who can perform uh, comedy. I think part of that comes from the the kind of confidence it seems to require. And and that's certainly something that you uh, project on stage is this confidence. But like at the same time that you project that you you talk in your CBC gem special, you know, the, the 10 minutes you filmed for. Uh, the new way of, of comedy about how comedy in some ways is about finding a source of validation. But basically it's like, 
you know, when you, when you come out with so much confidence, like you do in your JFL routine, for example, um, and you like stalk the stage and there's this physicality. Like I feel it sometimes as a teacher that sometimes you're just not ready to give that level of like energy. And then like in the moment, you kind of just have to summon it. Um, do you like, you know, is that about partly fighting for you this like tension between um, just being a person and then having to be a performer, right? Like a person that maybe has degrees of nihilism that doesn't come naturally to confidence and so on. And then just like having to turn it on just like that. How do you, how do you do that? I guess is in some ways the question. Um, it's, it is very much uh, a fake it till you make it kind of thing. <laughs> um, that like every joke is an opportunity to launch yourself courageously into the hope that it's going to pay off. Mm-hmm. And, um, so underneath, uh, underneath the the bravado of being on stage, there is that desperate human need for validation, and the best way to earn it is by feigning confidence on stage. You have to really, uh, at least portray the image that you believe enough in these jokes that everything will work out. And and so every joke is pretty much this leap of faith that. Uh, that the audience will like it. And I mean, of course it's a rehearsed thing. Like the more polished Mm -hmm. the material is, the easier it is to summon that confidence. But, but I won't lie. There is still, um, that tiny distant fear in the back of my mind that every joke I'm about to say is not going to work. And I'm going to be completely abandoned by this audience and exposed for the fraud that I, I am (laughs) deep down, you know? Hmm. I mean, it, it, I, I think a lot about Maria Bamford, who's one of my favorite stand-up comedians. And like, you know, there's this, there was a series called the comedians of comedy a while ago where she's on the road with like Patton Oswalt and, and Zach Galifianakis, these kind of uber confident comedians in some ways who can, you know, combine polished material with kind of riffing in ways that seem effortless, but that are actually like highly practiced and also partly come from like the identities that they inhabit. Whereas Bamford is a, is a person who struggles openly with like mental illness is an advocate in those ways. You're super articulate in your tight pants set on YouTube, where you talk about how your four and five year old niece and nephew responded to you coming out. You know, you say that their intellectual universe is always collapsing and kind of rebuilding. Uh, And what's great about that story is that you're also reflecting on how when they dismiss the magnitude of you coming out, it made you feel kind of self-conscious and in need of more validation. And so like, they're shrugging it off because they don't have a sense of the full social importance of gender identity yet. This thing that we as adults imbue with so much significance. Mm -hmm. Um, So like while embodying the gender that fits your sense of who you are is clearly a source of joy, you call it gender euphoria, which is such a beautiful phrase. Um, There's also value in being just like free of any judgment, being like a tabula rasa or whatever. Um, so was that like refreshing on some level, getting that reaction? Um, and how are you like sort of thinking through persona and cultivating it in comedy and, and, and its relationship to this journey that you're on basically? Wow. Um, these are great questions, Scott. I, I find that my journey is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to align my onstage quote unquote persona with, with who I am as a person, I think the the more authentic your act is to who you are, um, the better it will resonate with people, and, and just the funnier it'll be because it's honest. And I I think stand up is really this extension of my lifelong uh, need to understand myself, mm-hmm. and and so my act is 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 really honestly a bit self-indulgent in its in its therapy you're kind of you're witnessing me process uh, the changes that i'm going through in front of your eyes mm-hmm. and um and it's 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 not easy in some ways giving myself up to uh submitting myself to that judgment but uh kind of paradoxically it's it's always easier if you're just being honest and it's always easier to write material and to convey it when it's always from the heart when it comes from a very real place 
Yeah, and that radical honesty is something that definitely comes through um, in your in your comedy. And like, so you've talked about how you see a trend uh, that, you know, you didn't, you're not trying to like um, piggyback on that trend, but it's just like run, run parallel with your, with your commitment to that sort of honesty. And the trend is one that kind of makes room for tragedy and trauma being a part of comedy rather than just like being actively excluded from it, guarded against it. Um, And like, you know, so so it's it's amazing in some ways that you have like Hannah Gatsby's Nanette now as a watershed moment, Gerard Carmichael's Rathaniel. Um, and I just I, I guess I wondered if you could talk about the work you're doing right now, uh, the comedy you're preparing for this album you're recording in the fall, the performance you're doing for Pride Month, all of these things where, you know, you're trying to find that balance between like earnest emotion and silliness um, I listened to you, for example, talk about uh, the Drag Heels show on your podcast and how like you're trying to figure out what to share, what to protect, what to keep sacred and what to keep secret um, and moving away from like the shield of jokes, as you put it. Um, so the Drag Heels experience was uh, different from very different from my stand up in that it was. Uh, a little bit more heartbreaking, a little bit more, uh, it was more vulnerability without the relief of a punchline at the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still cut the tension with some jokes here and there, as is just my nature and I can't help it. But um, it kind of, it digs into a little bit more of a raw, desperate place. Mm. And um, basically my my piece, the the... The performance that Drag Heels culminates in, uh, it was about my inner critic and and basically the very cruel way that I am constantly talking to myself. Yeah, you and, call it the inner heckler yeah, on the, your podcast. Yeah, the yeah. inner heckler. Yeah, that's what I called it in 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 the piece too. Right. So like connect it to to my world of stand up. You know, I find that uh, with stand up. I think the the audience goes in with the expectation that the tension will be relieved. They just trust that whatever tension you build as a comedian will always have some kind of catharsis. And um, with this drag heels, the catharsis wasn't so much uh, a joke. It was sort of a serious realization mm-hmm. without without the release of a punchline. So I think in that sense, it feels a little bit more memorable and substantial. It gives you a little bit more to think about because I feel like, you know, joke f- packaging trauma and and insight into joke form almost disguises it in a way. Hmm. Like an effective joke will make people think and reflect and on on... I guess your thesis on the point of it for a long for a long time afterwards. But I think when the message is delivered without the fluff of a punchline, uh, I think it's, it, it has more, uh, longevity to, to chew on Mm -hmm. intellectually. Yeah. I think it can be more moving. Like, you know, uh, I think about, I think about jokes in relationship to music a little bit where like, a joke is like a song. A song is a higher form of language in a certain way. Um, it can operate on multiple registers all at once. So like hearing a weather station song is going to move you, but it's going to like stick with you in a way that might, you might like your brain might come back to it um, and you'll process it like later. Whereas if somebody is speaking to you directly in that more serious register, it's like right off the bat, right? You know, uh, unmediated almost. Um, then I think it's like, it, it has the capacity to push in a different way. And so I like from hearing how you've described um, your, your performance on the podcast podcast, is this supposed to just sound like podcast, but like mispronounced? I'm not sure. Where... The story is um, <laughs> that my, my real name is Algis, A-L-G-I-S. And so um, the running joke that I've always done my entire life is, is basically I describe my, my emotional physical states just adding gis at the end <laughs> so if i'm tired i'm tired gis 
If I'm so depressed that I just need to lay on the floor, I'm Florgus. Mm-hmm. I just add the last part of my name to whatever okay. mental state I'm in. And so Podgus is my little tongue in cheek. This is my podcast with. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but so like, you know, um, I, I'm super interested to see that come out for, it's going to be on out TV and Apple uh, from what I understand, like next year. Um, so, you know, congrats on getting that sort of, done and and you know i can't wait to see what comes out of it and so it's interesting to me that you know you do have this like this style that is about kind of trying to embrace yourself and and negotiate that um creating joy out of a shit situation as you've called it um but i wanted to talk about like one of your like stated influences which i don't know what kind of relationship you still have to like dane cook (laughs) um but you talk about how the album retaliation got you interested in stand-up and like there is a way in which like his physicality is, is like a little bit like yours. Uh, you have this JFL just for laughs set where you stalk the stage, jokingly intimidating the front row in the CBC gem shit set. There's this awesome moment where you're like flexing and saying, laugh, you didn't laugh. Um, <laughs> and I love those bits because it's like, it's just showing the embodied nature of stand up in this really funny way. Um, and so, like, you're aware, as you've said, that Cook is a person that people don't, he's not, like, cool anymore. People don't like him necessarily. So, you're like, sounds like you're a little self-conscious about stating him as an influence. But it is the case in a way that, like, the reason for that, it, I don't know if people remember this, is that, you know, Cook was exposed for having allegedly stolen some jokes from Louis C.K. And I wanted to ask you about joke theft, basically, and, like, the the, the politics of plagiarism in comedy specifically. Is it still the stigmatized thing that it was during that controversy? Um, you know, do people lose their reputations over it? Or do you think that the kind of intensification of what's called cancel culture has people paying attention to different kinds of problems in comedy? Um, joke theft is, and I'm positive, will always be a cardinal sin in comedy. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, my just to... Uh, be clear, my my sort of self-consciousness about uh, naming Dane Cook as an influence mm-hmm. has much less to do with the theft as a given. Like, that's, that's I mean, that's very wrong. Don't steal jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but um, my, <laughs> I'm self-conscious about naming Dane Cook as an influence because of the way it makes people roll their eyes. I mean, I take yeah. full ownership of it now, but for the longest time, uh, after he got so famous it was that slingshot effect where he was mm-hmm. just too ubiquitous and and people just it was cooler to to hate him at that point and so um i just <laughs> i kind of flinch at everything the culture that he sort of reflected and represented at the time the like the frat boy uh just kind of inconsequential the partying is really your only concern it's sort of a lack of humanity <laughs> um but you I know it, yeah. i've grown up so like fuck you if you don't if you think it's stupid that i used to love dade cook whatever man um yeah. but on your point about uh joke theft uh i mean yeah just to reiterate it's joke theft will always be a cardinal sin and unfortunately the current trend of so it, the fact that it's just so easy on social media to uh edit someone's tweet or joke or or material just li- literally plagiarize people's jokes on TikTok and pass them off as mm-hmm. your own um it's troubling and it's very uh frustrating and saddening as a comedian to see that yeah it's your livelihood yeah absolutely you know um so I mean, I thought that, not to invoke Louis C.K. too in this conversation, but I thought that the episode with Dane Cook and Louis where they sat down yeah. and discussed these accusation, accusations of joke theft, I thought they were both very honest about uh, where, how they saw the situation. Like, Louis, mm-hmm. I think at one point says that Dane Cook is kind of this rocket ship with its own gravitational thrust, yeah, yeah. its own pull. And so, you know whether he means to or not probably on a self uh, on a subconscious level he just sort of uh 
he's he's so he's thinking on his feet so often that sometimes you know a thought that isn't exactly completely original to him will sort of slip in and he's gonna riff on it so i Mm -hmm. thought i thought that was an interesting take i think joke theft isn't always so deliberate uh and i and i do appreciate the idea that you know sometimes there's parallel thought in comedy and and you'll use a premise that maybe you don't even abundantly realize that you heard it somewhere else you know Mm-hmm. There are experiences that perhaps are shared in just being yeah. people with with bodies, um, totally. you know, but at the same time, you know, it, it is about um, the uniqueness of your take. And so, you know, people are or, or social media accounts like fuck Jerry or whatever that are openly stealing jokes are really encroaching on people's ability to, you know, have any success. So it's um yeah, I'm really interested in the politics of that, but I'm also interested in the politics of, um, you know, trans identification and this sort of humor scandal that we're we're seeing emerge, where it seems like public sentiment and very public comedians are are like increasingly at odds. So, like Billy Eichner in his opening mon- monologue for the standout LGBTQ plus celebration like Netflix special talks about the contemporary attack on trans people and jokes that he is not only talking about Florida, he's talking about Dave Chappelle's latest Netflix special. And there's this like big, he gets this, all this, all these laughs, but it's like bitterly ironic that this is a joke being made on a Netflix special. Um, And I wanted to ask you about like the current climate for trans comics and the kind of hostility that Eichner is addressing. I know that you've said in an interview that you don't presume to, to be woke at all, so if you don't really want to weigh in on this, I get it. I mean, you're you're living your life and, and you don't have to necessarily weigh in as like a you know representative trailblazer. That stuff can be exhausting. But I did want to hear your thoughts on these popular comedians like Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais getting away with some of the most revolting forms of transphobic humor. I mean, how do you interpret the ways that Netflix has really stood behind Chappelle and Gervais and do you think comic, you know, comics like you, younger, like progressive comics, are increasingly fed up with these big names and even the streamers who support them? Um, hmm. my my perspective on these things is probably disappointingly simple. It's that history will basically dictate in a in a decade or so how we're gonna look back on this. My my perspective is basically that like in in ten years I'm sure we're all gonna look back on all of this, and and shake our heads at at just how regressive these these comedy specials really truly are, mm-hmm. and and so I kind of just have this I uh, this nonchalant indifferent blind trust that um, with more trans representation these these types of jokes are going to start being a, a relic of the past. And, like, all I can do is just basically keep my head down and keep hustling, keep working, keep representing myself the way I do and contributing an alternate voice to, to these rich fucking mm-hmm. comedians who have... who really, truly have nothing to lose. Like, they'll yeah. say that they're really putting themselves out there, but... Uh, it's evident that they are there. There's no canceling them. <laughs> they they scream that they're getting canceled, and then get paid twenty five million dollars to do two fucking specials on Netflix. Yeah. So like, cry me a river, man. Yeah, that's not what cancellation um, looks like for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just, I just, maybe this is just me quelling my cognitive dissonance, but I just trust that things will work out in the end it's almost it's so silly in its simplicity but i but i every time one of these scandals rises and falls it's just you know uh, what can i do about it mm-hmm. but to represent myself that's the best way to combat prejudice is by by educating people and just by showing up so yeah that's kind of my intention i you know i think that's kind of enlightening actually like because, you know, the kind of echo chamber of endless hot takes isn't actually changing the zeitgeist necessarily. 
Um, and I love this idea that, you know, looking like looking back on Gervais's most recent special, the hope is that it will not age well. Like we talk about comedy aging well or poorly, um, you know, and I know you, you're a fan of like Monty Python. John Cleese is this guy who now has this, this show, I think, called Cancel Me, which is trying to like work against like cancel culture. So like these these old guys who is obviously were incredibly impactful when it came to comedy um, don't have all of like the answers and we maybe shouldn't even look to them for the answers. Um, and I guess that that to me is like kind of enlightening to say there is comedy that we loved like I, I'm a fan of The Simpsons, right? You can look at supercuts of The Simpsons mocking LGBTQ plus people on YouTube, and like it's like an hour and a half long. These jokes strung together, you know. It's it's it is the case that we can be influenced by something that then doesn't age well, and the two things can kind of coexist. Um, trying to reconcile them maybe is like a fool's errand a little bit. It's like it's hard to do that, right? Um, so. Yeah. I think I think you've got a great uh, perspective on that, and one that is is sort of empower. It's empowering you to do uh, what you feel you you can, right? Uh, which is educate people in, in a way, and build this degree of like solidarity through humor. Um, and that kind of leads into my next question, which is about you know whether you think there is this progress being made in terms of actually like creating space for for diverse voices in comedy. I mean, back when you identified as gender fluid, you talked about how you might not be the best person to answer this question, which I think gets asked a lot because at that time you could still choose to sometimes inhabit the identity of a white guy, as you put it. Um, but there's a way in which now you're choosing to move, move away from the privilege of that position. Um, is there a sort of solidarity emerging among comics who break the mold, basically? So I I have to say, I in the in the year plus in the past two years i've enjoyed uh a lot of exposure and a lot of success and so i feel i mean at this point i feel like i i'm confident enough that i can comment now mm-hmm. <laughs> but i feel i do truly feel supported and i don't know if that's uh particular to toronto the the community in toronto or the community in Canada, or just the wider comedy community. I think, um, I I think there is, um, there is a demand for diversity in voices mm-hmm. in in art and comedy, and I I conveniently check a box. So I think that I mean, market wise. If we're just if we're going to speak about it purely from a capitalistic, if that's a mm-hmm. word, uh, sense of the word, mm-hmm. like there is, I I can be a cash cow. <laughs> I mean, tell that to my bank account. Uh, but where am I going with this? Essentially, I I do I do feel accepted and welcomed into the community and and given space mm-hmm. to. Um, to exist and i think uh in general comedians are still are are artists and will respect any other comedian who is either pushing the envelope or sort of discovering themselves and and working on mastering the craft and so this niche that i've built for myself this brand is uh particularly unique and i think just the way the market works, you know, people, people foster that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I feel like, um, I think the times are changing. And again, I don't know if this is just a, a a metropolitan, a Toronto type thing, but I really do feel like I've been celebrated. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And I think, yeah, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off by any means. Um, yeah. And I think, I think there is, just to put a cherry on to that point, mm-hmm. I do think that uh, marginalized groups are are being celebrated and represented with increasing effectiveness. Yeah. And I mean, like at the same time, it's clear that you have to hustle, you know, like this is just I, I just interviewed Janelle Niles 
um, a Mi'kmaq comedian, and she talks about having to do a lot of this work herself. And I want to come back to that, that question in just a second, but like, just in terms of the city you're in, um, on your podcast, not to get real, you've talked about actually being scared for your life, living where you live. I noticed that, you know, you basically live streamed your walk home on Instagram recently. And I wondered if that was just partly about feeling some level of protection from connection. Um, and you, you know, I mean, like you talk about being, feeling supported, depending on the city, you know, being publicly, um, you know, a trans woman, and you contrast the feeling of pride with the feeling of fear, and how these are dependent, I think, on like the context you're in, you know, when you're actually performing in different cities with different audiences, um, you know, for example, like the new wave of standup uh, set, you talk at the end about how Vancouver is distinct, right? Um, do you have a tester, a joke that you use that when you tell it, you know, right away, whether you've kind of got the audience, you've got their support and there are, are there more, you know, specific cities in Canada or in the States that you feel are the most receptive to your specific brand of comedy? Well, uh, first of all, I mean, COVID has basically put the kibosh on me traveling to the States for the, for the last little while. Right. And I'm currently mm -hmm. working on building a portfolio that'll allow me to work legally in the States. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. I can't speak to uh, America in particular, but um, yeah, so I haven't had the opportunity in the past two years to tour anywhere outside of the major cities in Canada. But I've, and so it's, I've been pretty safe, I guess you can say. But mm -hmm. um, I find that typically, I mean, just on site and upon hearing my voice uh, introduce myself when I'm up there, I think people... Well, I'm I'm clockable. <laughs> People know that I'm <laughs> I'm trans immediately as I take the stage. So mm -hmm. there isn't really much of a a tester. At the, right. Like people already kind of trust that I'm going to address the elephant in the room, and so I guess mm. uh, if I do, I mean, my opening joke lately has been. Um, I just come right out and say it. I'm like, how was your lockdown? Anybody else change genders out of boredom? Just me. Um, and and it's just my way of, yeah, addressing the elephant in the room directly mm -hmm. and immediately just to break that sort of tension and to remind the audience that I'm not above laughing at myself and they shouldn't feel like they have to coddle me or or walk on eggshells deciding what is morally uh, okay for them to laugh at and and what and where they should sympathize and pity me <laughs> you know and I think that's amazing and do you find that a requirement specifically maybe with i know you know you haven't had other maybe experiences outside of the country but do you have a sense that that is a canadian thing that people don't you know because i'm i'm just thinking about this context and how some comedians have talked about especially comedians that are you know bipoc folks um, you know, uh, speaking from a position of trauma is something that especially like the white mainstream, as it were, the white cis hetero patriarchal mainstream in Canada, um, especially liberals, I guess, uh, don't necessarily want to laugh at. So it's like more you're giving them license to laugh with you on some level, right? Like letting them in. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is. In effect, I'm giving them permission to laugh with me and mm -hmm. reminding them that, you know, it's a comedy show. You're not... I'm I'm giving you permission to laugh at slash with uh, everything that I'm about to say, and mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a great little um, message right off the top that like I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> let's yeah. let's talk about what we're looking at here. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, talking about I mean the jokes that you make in the tight pants set about like worrying that you're too like buying into certain like norms around femininity like being lost in a home depot <laughs> like it's so funny like can you break those jokes down in particular where you're like kind of like publicly worrying about uh how you're too overtly like conforming to feminine gender norms am i reading those jokes correctly am i over reading yeah. those jokes i don't know no absolutely i'm um 
I mean, one thing that I struggle with on or off stage just is is basically what trying to tease apart the societal aspects of what constitutes gender, like like mm. clothing, the superficialities that we attribute to male and female, like clothing and hair and makeup. And and I guess what I continue to struggle with is, you know, do I what makes me a woman? Is it is it the clothing? I do struggle with reflecting on on what is it that qualifies me as a woman. Mm-hmm. And and so I tried to I try to analyze that as as much as I can in my act without getting too verbose and heady. Yeah, but yeah. but um you know, jokes like the Home Depot thing uh uh playing up the whole damsel in distress at a at a Home Depot just so I can feel validated. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of mocking gender norms as well it's sort of i'm doing i feel without patting myself on the back too hard i feel like i am accomplishing a a a few things in Mm -hmm. one fell swoop by talking about it i am and i am kind of mocking gender norms um by exploring this this transitional phase Mm -hmm. i think this is the paradox of parody in a weird way right because at the same time that it's you're parodying it as a comedian, you're occupying an identity in earnest, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like that has to be a really tricky balance. I think about your love of like what it's it, what seems like hair metal and music that tends toward that kind of like you know heavy rock, like you like Guns and Roses and stuff. Like there's a way in which like there's this style of self expression that exists, the rocker that has always been kind of androgynous, the long hair and everything, and the tight pants. And even as you like play guitar in your drag heels performance, it isn't, you're not reducible to those categories, like at the same time, I think. Um, so this is what I think what you're, what you're exploring without, as you say, being too heady or preachy or didactic in, in your, in your performance. Um, but I guess I wanted to come back to, unless you had comments around the rock and roll thing, <laughs> yeah, what's your relationship to guitar right now and that kind of aspect of your performance? I, I, I've always thought there is nothing sexier to me than a, a badass front woman in a band holding a guitar, mm-hmm. uh, just rocking out. I just think rocker chicks are so, so powerful and so sexy. I think because there is this sort of masculine, almost phallic element to holding a guitar slung low. I don't know. I, sure. I I don't know if it's if it's their way of sort of taking ownership of what feels like a more masculine presence, but but accomplishing it with grace and femininity. It's I think it's just a powerful image. I mean, Saint Vincent comes to mind for sure. The way that Saint Vincent can wear suits and at the same time thongs and these you know like play with gender in these like really. Uh, physical ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, let's, let's maybe jump back to this, this question of just like the business of it a little bit, not to be crass, but, um, like on your podcast, again, you, you talk about at one point, uh, how you need a team around you that right now you're doing it all on your own. Um, and it sounds like this is partly because you had this breakout year and, and you're getting more, you're, you're getting exposure, you're getting work. Um, I wonder, you know, if you, if you, you know, do do you think in part that that surge that you've experienced since 2020 is just like, it's about the pandemic and people needing humor more? Do you think that, you know, part of it is just figuring out who you are and moving away from what you've called this kind of bro-y identity, just like being more comfortable in your own skin? Was it more about figuring out specific things about the business of comedy, like being a smart entrepreneur and like about that question of the having a team, um, I know this is a lot of questions all bundled into one, but like, do you think having a team would just like give you the time and energy to develop creatively? Does like all of the entrepreneurial work you have to do on top of the the writing sap your strength, basically? Um. Yeah, I think not only does it sap my strength, but I think that I am, I still haven't quite perfected it i think when when your attention uh 
is being pulled in so many different directions, you it's harder to be to be truly effective at any one thing. So that's why I feel like on the business end of things, in terms of staying organized and sending invoices and booking myself and negotiating pay and mm-hmm. all the kind of more administrative elements of being an entertainer, the the quote unquote job part of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I it's unfortunate that in Canada there isn't a whole lot of um there aren't any agencies that represent live performance and and mm-hmm. comedians. It's all on camera work. Mm-hmm. And so comedians really have to truly do it all on their own. What about like funding? Because there's like so much government funding in Canada, but it seems to only really reward like traditional art forms, right? Like oh, yeah. Humor, it's like, what is that? How do we give how do we give that a grant? You know? The structure doesn't odd... support you. Yeah, exactly. Sorry to interrupt. There's no. there's an odd there's always been this stigmatism against comedy as a form of art. Mm-hmm. I guess for some reason, because um, because it's jokes and laughter and levity, I feel like it's it's got this little sibling relationship to like to to drama and visual art and and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You know, that's why, what was it, in the Oscars? Did they still put comedy and musical together as a category? I don't know. Um, you mean the Golden Globes or? I don't know any of the I think, yeah, the Golden Globes, they do it. that. They bundle them together, right? Yeah, yeah. I think. And, and so all this to say, I think um, it's it's sort of been changing. I mean, comedians in Canada unionized, sort of, Uh Two, three, four years ago, hmm. and and we have a group of comics working hard to sort of legitimize the art of stand-up comedy uh, with with the government, so that hmm. we can actually apply for grants and that there'll there'll be grants available for stand-up comics. So I do think the culture is changing, but um, it's been a long time coming, and it and we're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's interesting. There's echoes of the ways in which, like, I'm a, also a fan of, like, actual comics, like comic books, graphic novels. That The history of that is really specific figures like Art Spiegelman, you know, coming up with the term graphic novel, like literally changing the, the, the terms of the game in order to, as you say, like, legitimate it and make it deserving of funding. Uh, but so much of it is just, like, performative in a way. And, and yet, you know, you know, capitalism is the is the water we swim in. So it makes sense that in some ways, like art is commodified. But I'm I'm like heartened by the fact that at the same time that that is obviously the case that the structure still kind of works that way. Um, that comics are, as you say, like unionizing. I'm super interested in that as just like a source of like collective power. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I I did um, I asked you to look at this this um, performance by Gerard Carmichael in in Rathaniel, his HBO special, and like it's just to me, you know, um, I saw lots of ways in which like that was resonating with what you were kind of trying to do in terms of narrating your journey. He's he's like exposing secrets as he frames it, right? Um, and so, you know, you say in your incredible new wave of stand-up routine that it's kind of poetic that you're recording the performance two years after coming out on stage as queer. Um, and so this is what Carmichael is doing. He's coming out on stage as gay in, in Rathaniel. Um, so he's like defying expectations, both in terms of going against the hyper-masculine hetero way that a black man, he says, is expected to just be in the world. But he's also going against expectations of a comedian. Like there's this long, there are long silences in that special. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it can like, it, there's this incredible catharsis at the end where he talks about freedom and personal growth. And there's this like so much applause and approval and, and, and support and care from the crowd. Um, I'm wondering, you know, after having watched Rathaniel, what your impressions were of the sort of vulnerability he shows there um, and whether like you can, you know, imagine yourself, I don't know, creating similar kinds of art that expand the frame for people to like experiment, to become who they want to be. Do you think comedy can, you know, it obviously is in some ways, but do you think comedy has almost like a, a duty to do this sort of experimental work to make more room for folks? 
That's a good question. I mean, I don't necessarily know if I like the word duty. I feel like comedy. Yeah, I wasn't sure about it. <laughs> I feel like comedy maybe doesn't doesn't necessarily owe anyone anything besides, mm-hmm. I guess, a laugh if you want to be considered a comedian. Mm-hmm. But I think um, the current trend to be a lot more vulnerable and and to leave spaces without that release of a laugh of a joke of a punchline i th- i think um it's a risk but there's a reward to it right yeah absolutely and i feel like it it elevates comedy from being this frivolous endeavor to to maybe a little bit more of a humanizing experience mm-hmm. showing you who exists behind the jokester's mask what mm. what makes them really truly human and uh i i'm enjoying the demand for it i think um mm. this this radical honesty trend isn't going away anytime soon yeah i mean and it 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 it's validating i think in many ways like you've talked about how in your early days and your teens, you felt kind of compelled to coincide with all these comments people were making around you, reading your reading who you were and calling you like, a, you know, a, a lady killer and these kinds of like things. Carmichael is open in that special about the, that that similar pressure to be masculine. Um, I think like the obvious effect is that, you know, of this of this culture of like masculine socialization is that if you want to indulge in who you are and what you actually want, as you've said, it becomes this like shameful act and you have to like somehow either suppress it or overcome it. Um, and there's, so there's all these really strong resonances between your standup and Carmichael's, especially in terms of, and I don't know if you want to get into this, how you speak openly about how your mothers really hurt you with their kind of closed mindedness. Um, I have to think that's really difficult to talk about, but at the same time has a, a real value um, within, you know, the public space of, of doing comedy uh, to help just process those experiences. In those moments where you're making those jokes and you're getting laughs, is it almost like the audience becomes your chosen family in a way? The audience does become a chosen family in the sense that while they are judging they are, while they are judging your your effectiveness as a comedian and as an entertainer, I I feel like the the contract between the comedian and the audience it it feels especially for me it feels like we are entering into an intimate relationship mm-hmm. where one in which you know I'm I am opening my heart to this audience and I'm trusting that they will handle it with care sure um so I do I do like the idea that the audience becomes this chosen family, especially because I got to be honest. I mean, I, I invest a lot of my self-esteem into how I'm doing on stage. Like I, there is a need for this validation. And so the audience becomes this family that provides me my little ego hits and my, my self-esteem boosts. They are, (laughs) they are a family that I've chosen and, and that I spend a lot of time with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think there's only like a a handful of comedians who don't care if they bomb, right? Like there is almost a level of nihilism to that. If you are just, you know, you go out to the judgment of an audience, as you put it, and then just disregard that there is a certain expectation. Norm Macdonald was sort of infamous apparently for just like never caring if he bombed. He might be, if you think about it, the most famous Canadian stand-up comedian ever. And yet, like, that is a defining characteristic of that guy, to just not care on any level, to almost savor it. Um, and I think, like, that level of nihilism, like, it, it too does not age well. Like, there's something shocking about it. There's something amazing about it, in a way. But I think the ways in which, like, certain comedians who clearly, like, love loved Norm Macdonald and we're deeply attached to him, ignore the fact that Nick in his most, you know, the posthumous Netflix routine, 
um, that he that uh, that was that just came out, you know, there are transphobic jokes in that routine, and clearly he says them without any concern for how they're going to land, what impact they're going to make. Um, and that nihilism is bad. Like, I don't, I feel like it's kind of indefensible to be honest, like, you know, so caring about public sentiment, caring about this intimate relationship that you have to your on your audience is just more honest. Yeah. I, I, well, I think that's a great point. And, um, I've always been genuinely perplexed at, uh, some of the comedians I've overheard brag about the audience that they've walked and, mm-hmm. and walking is, is an industry term for like, you know, getting annoying or, or pissing audience members off so much that they get up and leave or ask for their money back. They just leave in right. the middle of your set. And so I've always been so perplexed at comedians who brag about the, the audience members that they've walked, because not only does it kind of indicate that you, you, you bombed, <laughs> that you failed your job, but it also indicates this um antagonism like why would you be proud of exploiting an audience's trust and care and attention just to abuse them i just Mm -hmm. don't i can't wrap my head around that and Mm -hmm. so while i do respect a comedian like norm's um irreverence i guess uh, his Mm -hmm. um his lack of any sort of fear of bombing. I think that is very respectable and I wish I had a little bit more of that myself. Mm -hmm. I do think that as a comedian, you do have a responsibility and a duty to respect your audience and to Mm -hmm. be considerate of their time and money. (laughs) Sure. You know, and you know, care, I mean, you obviously don't want just like maybe an echo chamber where you're just like feeding back into their expectations. Like I think comedy is, is great when it sort of tries to chafe against those norms and stuff. Uh, but at the same time, having such like uber confidence that you can like force an audience to vacate is not necessarily a point of pride. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's gotta be, and comedy treads in that that kind of middle ground of of you know hospitality and hostility in a weird way, um, and yeah. So I mean, like, I wanted to, I guess, come back to the challenge of doing comedy during the pandemic, um, which you know it's not really over, uh, but we're pretending it kind of is. Uh, and I guess, like, I'm wondering about obviously, like, how you know challenging it was to do comedy during the pandemic. I don't know if you want to talk about the I mean, you're particularly good with Zoom comedy shows. I'll say that. Like, you're very engaging with the Zoom audience. You're, you're like, very present to it, which I have to think is difficult. Um, but as we emerge from doing, or comedians emerge from doing Zoom shows, um, do you feel like you and others are trying to make up for lost time and, in a way, lost income? I mean, do you see other comics hustling in the same way? And is that hustling kind of, you know, purely artistic? Or is it mostly just, like there's a financial impetus to get out and and try and fill venues. The way I kind of see it, I mean, the, the drive to hustle, um, is unchanged. I don't think the nature of it has changed at all. I think, uh, everyone's just eager and relieved to be back into the more or less normal swing of things. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, speaking to zoom shows in particular, I, my strategy has always been, I'm a firm believer in adaptation in comedy. And, um, you know, before I came out, I spent a lot of time on the road performing at really at venues that had no business running a comedy show. And, (laughs) and when you do enough of those gigs, you learn how to adapt and how to make it work and how to improvise and how to, um, point out where you're standing and what, what's on the walls and who you're talking to. And, Mm -hmm. and so that ability to roll with the punches and improvise really helped me out during the zoom phase because my, my zoom act is basically very self-referential. I'm, I'm pointing at things in my room. I'm, I'm talking, I'm pointing, pointing out things in other people's (laughs) rooms there, you know, you, you just have to stay honest and address what's going on around you. 
it's it makes no sense to ignore those kinds of things and and you really have to adapt and so i would say that now that things are opening up again it feels almost like business as usual but with a bit more of a boom like i'm speaking for for toronto and i feel like in general we're we're enjoying a nice little comedy renaissance i think stand-up comedy is growing in popularity i'm seeing uh some new clubs pop up here in toronto that are that are doing very well and so i think the hustle will always remain the same i think um there isn't any sort of feeling of making up for lost time at least not for me because i've i've been writing pretty consistently and still performing so it all just feels like business as usual personally that's a really interesting kind of inside view right especially the the fact that these new clubs are are opening and stuff like just giving you know um actual physical space but also like what it's meant for you to like yeah have to adapt to these sometimes not <laughs> very suitable spaces that's really interesting but I guess, you know, in terms of making up this idea of making up for lost time, I wanted to talk about your like part of your JFL routine where you you explain that at first people interpreted how you were performing and presenting as a form of drag. And you have all these great lines about how superficial and mean the drag community can be yeah. ending with this line that you're just three as in three years old. Um and I wanted to use this to basically ask about the relationship between, to be really academic about it, queerness and temporality. You know, I teach this essay by Jody Taylor called Queer Temporalities and the Significance of Music Scene Participation, where she says that, quote, queer lives often skip over some of the steps of the heteronormative timeline and skew the responsible progression towards maturity by favoring, often through just involvement in queer scene activities, a prolonged youthfulness and lingering within early adulthood. Basically, she argues that queer uses of time are different, that coming out and the time it takes after coming out to create new forms of relationality and new identities means that you're really starting anew. Um, and I wonder like, if you're, if you're thinking about that, if you're writing jokes or, or things that aren't jokes, right? Uh, forms of art that focus on that aspect of the queer experience, this feeling of being like you are in a sense, three years old. Yeah. Um, I, that really resonates with me. The, the point that you're making about starting a new life. I mean, they, they literally call transitioning uh, second puberty. If you're taking hormones, because mm -hmm. you have this pubescent, your body is going through changes, um, you know, emotionally you're going through this whole uh, you're reliving puberty in in a new gender and so i totally get the desire to sort of reclaim the youth that you didn't get to have like that that mm -hmm. awkward adolescent phase enjoying it this time as what feels like your true self what you what you what you never got to enjoy because you're you were protecting yourself you were closeted sure and so i mean that really resonates with me first of all mm -hmm. the idea that you know uh this is my these are my teens again and my act really reflects that i think it's really compelling to it to paint yourself as an underdog in the sense that you're new to an experience you're a fish out of water you're you're clumsy or making mistakes all over but you're learning and i think people are really compelled by that underdog figure yeah totally. and so a lot of my act is literally me just spelling out like hey i don't i honestly don't know what i'm doing i'm kind of figuring it out as i go along this whole this crazy transition thing and uh these are the ways in which i'm i'm clumsy and new and and making all these beautiful hilarious mistakes Mm -hmm. and um and so yeah i think that uh that really resonates with people and i i um i do totally agree i i love that point about just basically sort of not regressing wouldn't be the right word but maybe freud would call it regressing like into into a, a juvenile phase yeah what I did freud it. know <laughs> yeah yeah i know right 
Um, no, I, 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 I like that this idea of, you know, beautiful, hilarious mistakes, as you put it, you know, um, you know, leaving more room for that sort of like failure and figuring it out and all that stuff is, is, uh, refreshing in comedy, which is, you know, historically it has been about the kind of aggressive perspective of somebody who I guess does have it all figured out or, or even if they're avowing their own complicity with like really shitty habits, you know, somebody like CK was kind of like, this is what his comedy was built around mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Um, they're still like defiantly owning it, you know, it's, it, there's like a, a barrier. And so like moving away from that sort of, you know, masculine uh, persona in a way is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's enlightening. It's, it's, it, it really does. Um, there's something energetic and, and wonderful about it. And, you know, so you've, you've joked that no one took you seriously until you slapped on a wig and a dress, mm -hmm. but it's like, you combine that with a specific communication style, you know, you have this joke about like, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't even know, I can't pull it off, but the Courtney Cox took up MMA <laughs> joke, right. <laughs> You know, like that embodied queer nature of your performance, you know, like I wonder how you relate to, and it's weird that I'm asking this, the, the, the men in the audience in particular, right? Are you like constantly having to negotiate the specific sort of work of like creating conditions for men in the audience specifically to laugh? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I, I do. I do do my best to take my male audience members into consideration but i do play a lot with that discomfort and i think mm. i i challenge it without being too antagonistic mm -hmm. and uh i challenge their discomfort in a more playful way but i i think um what i'm basically trying to do is subvert and point out that feeling that they get where like as heterosexual men if they feel any sort of attraction to me that let's i mean let's name it because <laughs> mm -hmm. it would make me feel good but um <laughs> i do take them into consideration but i also want to challenge them mm -hmm. as well and and remind them that it's i mean it's okay to be anything outside of heteronormative right yeah and especially generationally i think like there's this notion like apparently just like there have been studies that now show that there's a far like a, a more radical embrace of sort of like pansexuality uh fluidity all of these things uh among younger people like there's just it, it really is a generational thing that you can like track it, uh, that men of a certain age are, are incredibly unnerved by, you know, feeling any sort of like non-normative forms of attraction or desire. And so like you calling it out, naming it in the way that you do, um, I see is potentially transformative and I really love it. Um, I appreciate that. It's kind yeah. of, thanks. <laughs> and thanks so much. You know, I won't take any more of your time. You've been really generous with just coordinating this and, and letting me, ask you these questions. I, you know, they're, they're maybe too, they were too prying at times. I apologize for that, but no, um, not at all. I'm, yeah. I, I could talk to you for hours. I, I find these questions. I got to say it's very thought, very thoughtful, very insightful. I'm honored that you did all this research and you watched all this footage. My God. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it was fun. Most of my interviews are pretty academic, um, but anytime I have an opportunity to uh, speak to somebody who's doing the work of bringing joy um, and yet also trying to provoke these sorts of, as I say, like actual transformations in people and publics, I'm excited to do it. So mm -hmm. it's my pleasure. Um, can I can I also say one more thing? Of course. Uh, to, to the last question. Um, basically, what always what often crosses my mind uh is that so many men are unfortunately closeted about their pansexuality or their sexual tastes. You know what I mean? Like transgender mm. pornography is like one of the most popular categories. And, and my experience when I was in the closet was just, there were a lot of, 
there were a lot of married men. There were a lot of uh, guys sneaking around on girlfriends. These tragically closeted people all over. I just I I feel this desire to to chip away at at the shame the 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 culture of being closeted. I just I mm-hmm. I want to contribute some kind of humanity to to combat the idea that these men are their tastes in trans women are are shameful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because I've been a victim of it, and and I think. Too many people are victims of it. So I, I kind of hope that in effect when I take the stage and I, you know, whatever, jokingly, flippantly mock dudes for their weird boners. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll, I'll be a little bit more responsible and sophisticated with it because <laughs> even just saying it out loud right now makes me feel a bit gross and juvenile. But um, I just... But grabs attention, you know, right? That kind of the grossness yeah. of it, as it were, the grotesque. Um, the carnivalesque, like these are the things that grab people's attention. Um, you know, it's it's like we, you don't necessarily want to be uh, Captain Holt on Brooklyn Nine Nine calling a dick pic a digital phallus portrait. Like, use the words that are used, as you say, name it, right? Like, and we shouldn't yeah, be scared yeah, yeah. of the names of the words either, in the ways that we always, always are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I mean, like, uh, I I think there's so much value in, in the sort of liberatory stuff you're doing, and I do hope that. The sort of prophecy is true that you know looking back so much of the comedy that is scandalous today and yet supported by these streamers is is seen as utterly dated uh and hurtful and regressive in the ways that like clearly is people understand uh that it doesn't help chip away as you say at the shame that people experience to reproduce that kind of hateful stuff you know totally Um, and and my strategy is uh, just to I mean just to be as visible as I can. I feel like debating it and discussing it feels a bit exhausting at times for me. So I feel like the best way to combat prejudice is by being visible and and portraying a humanity. Like I'm I'm more than just my traumas, and I'm more than just you know the sob stories of of the way society treats me like i have my triumphs and my struggles alike and i'm and i'm just as human as anybody else so i feel like the best way to combat that prejudice is by being as visibly human as i possibly can that's really and truly my only goal uh well and thanks for putting all your energy into it i hope you have a team around you soon that can help you with it um and uh yeah good luck with everything Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate this. This was a pleasure.